Good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Unlimited Intelligence. And the subtitle is, Are We Using Ours to the Fullest? And just to clear up any delusion that a few of you may have, the answer is no. Now, there is a single proposition to this talk, and it is this, that the universe is pure intelligence. And everything reflects that intelligence, man most of all. So what has been said is that man is pure intelligence. It's not that he or she has it, he or she is it. It's not an achievement, because we are born intelligent. Thus we are inherently intelligent. Despite this, very few of us live intelligently, or even die intelligently. And this intelligence is limitless, because man, in truth, is limitless. As a result, there is no difference whatsoever in intelligence between one human being and the next. Now, some people in the room may take this as an insult, and some may take it as praise. <laughs> intelligence belongs to consciousness, but not to the mind. So the mind is actually not intelligent, it is consciousness which is intelligent, and that intelligence may reflect in the mind. The mind may use intelligence, but it has none of its own, as we shall see later. Now, this intelligence is constant. It does not grow or decay. So, gaining an education does not make you more intelligent. So, it doesn't grow and it doesn't decay. Differences of intelligence certainly appear. So, what is the explanation if intelligence is the same for all of us and does not grow or decay? And the analogy that is often used is if you can imagine three light bulbs, and each of them are a hundred watt light bulbs, but one of them is significantly neglected. So over a period of time, a heavy coating of dust descends on that particular light bulb. Another one is only partially neglected, so there's a light coat of dust on it, and one is well cared for, so it's absolutely clean. If you turn the three light bulbs on, from the outside, one of them will, the one that has the heavy coating of dust, will appear to be dull. The other one will appear to be, anyway, lesser than the one that is absolutely clean. And the clean one will appear to be the brightest of them all. But from the inside, they're all shining with exactly the same intensity. So, each and every one of us has limitless intelligence, but we differ only in the degree that it is covered over. Effectively, the degree that we access and use it. Now, intelligence has nothing to do with knowledge, i.e. knowledge in the form of information about the creation. If we read all the books in the world, it will not make us intelligent. Memory of information is good for the marketplace, but we need intelligence to really live well and fully. Now, intelligence operates when we are open. 
the pseudo-intellectual cannot listen because he has already concluded, already closed down his or her mind. Socrates said by the oracle at Delphi to be the wisest of them all spoke that he knew nothing. Well, if we conclude, then yesterday's experience becomes our definitive future. Now, despite this, we are always seeking conclusions. Conclusions are like frozen knowledge, whereas intelligence flows. A child is intelligent because he is empty of information, a clean slate, uncontaminated. And look at the incredible development in the first few years of life when we know nothing. Now, intelligence operates only when we encounter the unknown. So-called knowing makes us unintelligent. When we know, we become bored. And notice how stupid a person looks when they are bored. It is as if the light of intelligence has gone out of them. To live intelligently is to live in the unknown, in a way to live in constant spontaneity. People like Socrates and Jesus are the really intelligent ones. Socrates who knew nothing and Jesus who never spoke a word of his own. Imagine that, he says it in the Bible, that he only spake the words that the Father gave him. Imagine that, in 33 years, you never spoke a word of your own. So consider how many words you and I have spoken, which are our own. Now, we need to take a look at thinking. Thinking takes place in the absence of understanding. We think because we do not understand. When understanding arises, then thinking ceases. And when thinking stops, then and only then can understanding arise. So if you don't understand something and you would like to understand it, you have to stop thinking. And the sooner you stop thinking, the quicker you'll understand. Thinking cannot lead to new understanding. It cannot give us the intelligent answer because thinking can only repeat the already known. Thinking never, ever, ever leads to understanding. Einstein said he never came to any of his discoveries through rational thinking. How about that? You and I spend our lives attempting rational thinking and we haven't discovered anything. Thinking has no vision for the unknown. And if you want to try that now, just try now to think about the unknown. Something you know absolutely nothing about. Try and think about it. And you'll find you can't. Thinking is merely repetitive. If there are too many thoughts, we simply get confused. If there's too much thinking, we simply go mad. 
to respond, we have to be aware and see what is the need of the situation. The intelligent person behaves in accordance with the situation and the unintelligent person behaves according to his ready-made answers. The unintelligent person is afraid to depend on himself. So he depends on his accumulation of information. Mr. McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy Worldwide, used to say, if you don't know how to do a job, just start it. All you have to do is just start it. You may not have the information, but intelligence will be stirred to respond to the need. The intelligent person does not depend on information. He trusts his own being. Now, what does it mean to live stupidly? This, of course, doesn't apply to any of you. But you may have a friend that it might sort of, you know, bring to mind as you listen to these things. All right? The wise would consider any or all of the following as living stupidly. So, if you were always seeking happiness in things and people outside of yourself, like, so if you were so stupid as to think that a husband could make a wife happy, right? Or that a wife could make a husband happy, you know, if you're that stupid. Or if you thought that more money would make you happy or whatever, a bigger house or all those sort of things. Well, that would be really stupid. And the reason why, because the only true source of happiness is within yourself. So you can never find it in another person or thing. Wanting limitless and eternal happiness, and yet seeking it in things that are limited and die, is plain stupid. Second uh, thing that the wise would consider as incredibly stupid would be to grieve for the departed. In the Bhagavad Gita, one of the famous books of the East, it says, The wise grieve neither for the living nor the dead. And yet they enjoy a level of love that you and I know nothing about. Yet they do not grieve. Thirdly, being dependent on others, wealth, fame, etc., for contentment. So if you ever find that if you if your wealth goes down, like you enter into negative equity or something like that on your home, and you become less content, well, that would be really stupid. It would also be equally stupid if you became more content if the equity in your house increased. Dedicating the amount of time that we ordinarily do to the care of the body, the least important aspect of our existence. So dragging it off to a sunny place for a fortnight every summer, spending a fortune on it in terms of clothes and makeup and, you know, all sorts of things. The damn thing decays on you anyway, you know, and uh, lets you down with every passing year. Imagine if you didn't care for your body as much. Imagine the amount of free time you'd have. You wouldn't need a house or a fire or food. You wouldn't need a shower. It wouldn't be just special shampoo, which is the only shampoo that suits your hair. The wise think this is incredibly stupid, not to dedicate your entire life to the discovery of truth about yourself. 
part-time philosophers would still be classified as living stupidly. How about regretting the past? That would be terribly stupid. Or dwelling pleasantly in the past. Or trying to control how our life unfolds by making plans for tomorrow. Very stupid. Since we're not master of the universe. It's the equivalent of a child with a little pink steering wheel in the back seat of the car, thinking he can determine which way the car goes. Sometimes the child turns the steering wheel to the left, and the car actually does go left. And he thinks, I'm in control. <laughs> what a silly little boy or girl he is. Well, that's what happens. Whenever our plans work out, it's nothing to do with us. It's just mere coincidence. Or expecting others to truly love us when we don't truly love ourselves. Or not doing what we know to be true and doing what we know is wrong. Or here's a classic one, making ourselves miserable. Do you ever do that? Do you ever make yourself miserable? And if you haven't, well at least you have observed other people who make themselves miserable. Well, that's incredibly stupid. Or having a heart capable of loving the universe and then confining our love to half a dozen people instead of loving all without exception. So, on that basis, how did your friend fare? <laughs> this remarkably stupid friend that you have. How intelligently do we live our lives so let's see how much of our intelligence we have accessed and used. So we're all, well I think maybe perhaps bar one gentleman, we're all 21 plus. Some of us plus a very serious rate of that. But anyway, we're all 21 plus. And we have intelligence. So after 21 years, we should have come to know the answer, the answers to the fundamental questions of life. Now I don't mean believe, I mean know know for certain that this is true or false. So, we should know what is a human being. I mean, having occupied the, the form of one for 21 years plus, we should know is, is the human being merely a body, or is it a body and mind, or a body, mind and heart? Or does it have a spirit or soul? And what is this spiritual aspect of the human being? Secondly, we should have found out, at least by this stage, whether man is eternal or not. And if we have found out that he's eternal, then we wouldn't be afraid of death anymore. We should also, despite the, the scientific world, we should know how the world came into existence. We should know wherein our complete happiness lies. Because we've all been searching for happiness since the moment we were born. So, I mean, after 21 years, we should have found it. We also should be able to answer the question, why did I come into this world? Instead of thinking I was forced by the act of some lustful parents. And as happiness can only be enjoyed now, for how long do we live in the now? So do we try to anticipate the future? Do we get angry over little things? Are we true to ourselves? Do we avoid doing the things that we need to do just because they're unpleasant? And do we start a lot more things than we finish? 
So how intelligently are our lives being lived? Now, leaving aside illness, imagine if we could not control our bodies. So say I was uh, 50 years of age and still had not mastered walking or holding a fork. Say my aged mother still had to feed me. Or I had one of those, you know, those things that babies go around and they stick their two legs through a thingy bob and whatever it is and they sort of wheel themselves around the place. Imagine at age 50, there you are, going down O'Connell Street in one of these things because you still haven't managed how to walk. So would we call that intelligent if we hadn't mastered control of the body and its movements? And the answer would be obviously no. But what about control of our minds? Can we control them? Can we stop them from dreaming and wandering off? Well, you know, we've used these examples before, but you know, sometimes at three minutes to six, you promise yourself you're going to listen to the six o'clock news because there's something very important on. And the next minute you come out of your dream and it's 25 past six. And you're getting the weather. And that's depressing. Shouldn't even bother to turn on the radio for that. Can we stop ourselves from speculating and anticipating? Can we stop ourselves saying something that would be better left unsaid? Can we stop ourselves from breaking promises we make to ourselves or others? And if our body was as uncontrollable and argumentative as our mind, what sort of an idiotic life would that be? For quite often we say things in our minds, like, I'm going to cut the grass this weekend. Then I think it looks kind of nice longer when, when, when the weekend comes. It sort of has character. <laughs> well, what about our hearts? Have we got control over those? Have we got a heart that will not stop worrying about things? Or won't forgive, even though the lack of forgiveness causes us to suffer most? Or it can't stop regretting the past which we cannot change? Or it loses its happiness over nothing? If we have hearts like this, how much control do we have over them? Now, without control of our bodies, minds and hearts, we cannot live intelligently. So, what gets in the way of this pure intelligence which we are? And as Jesus said, having eyes they see not, and having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. It would be ridiculous to have excellent eyes and not see what was in front of you or to have excellent ears, and not to hear what has been said to you. So what are the barriers to intelligence? And the first and primary and ultimate cause of all stupidity is egoism. Now, egoism in the philosophical sense. And that is believing that we are a particular body, mind and heart. A body definitely suffers pain and it enjoys pleasure. But do you? Or believing that you are that thought in the mind. A thought such as, I cannot do that. Or believing you are a feeling in your heart, like I am miserable. Or I won't enjoy that. This belief that you are a particular body, mind and heart means that you separate yourself from the entire universe. 
and separating yourself from the entire universe, you cut yourself off from the source of the universe, which is pure intelligence. So you cut yourself off from pure intelligence. And so cutting yourself off from pure intelligence, you behave stupidly. Stupidity is not not having intelligence. It is just not using it, not accessing it. So it's like a light bulb that cuts itself off from the source of electricity and still tries to be bright. We do not call a plant stupid. You don't go up to a daffodil and say, you stupid daffodil. Why not? A daffodil has far less intelligence than you. So why do you not call a plant stupid? The reason why is because the plant uses its intelligence, albeit it is limited intelligence. But we do call a man or a woman stupid because they are intelligent and are not using it. All conditioning, all identification stops us being intelligent, stops us seeing things as they are. It's like, you know, when two managers of, say, a Premier Division club are interviewed after the match and asked, well, what did they think? And both of them say, well, I think we were on top in the first half and we created more chances and we deserve to win. So how could they do that? How can both get a completely erroneous view of the match? Well, it's all to do with identification. And just to give you a sense of how stupid it can be, many, many, many years ago, and I mean many, many, many years ago, as my children would say in a previous uh, sort of century or way of existence, uh, I was asked to babysit, which is an incredibly brave thing of these particular parents to do. And I was asked to babysit anyway, and they had a black and white television, because there weren't colour televisions in those days. And black and white television was black and white and ex-gazillion spots. So watching uh, Wimbledon was like watching two tennis players with about 50 tennis balls, right? And you couldn't work out which one was the tennis ball. Anyway, I decided I would care for the children by watching a football match on the television. And it was in black and white. And I followed Manchester United. It was Manchester United, let's say, against Liverpool or something like that. And the thing I hadn't appreciated was that Manchester United were away. For some reason, I just assumed they were at home. And on the black and white, there was a team with black tops and white shorts. Manchester United. So for 45 minutes, I cheered them. I thought, what brilliant football. Outstanding. Right? The cleverness. Just Manchester United's very best. And during the commentary in the break, the interval, I discovered that it was the other team that was Manchester United that they were in their away strip which was all white or something like that at the time unbelievable anyway to be intelligent the need is to be free of ideology so there's no such thing as an intelligent human being who belongs to the Fianna Fáil party or the Fianna Gael party or Sinn Féin or Labour any of these things because they're not free of ideology they cannot see things as they are. The second great barrier to our intelligence is our education. The second great barrier 
to us accessing our intelligence is our education. Now, it's the type of education we receive. Education itself is obviously excellent. But because of our education, our intelligence can get covered over with layers of information. And this is then what is referred to and not our intelligence. A lot of modern education mainly demands memorization only. Then you get copying and not inventiveness or creativity or originality. So, what limits our intelligence? And the first thing is false knowledge. And the worst of false knowledge is not knowledge which is totally erroneous, but is knowledge which is limited in its scope. And to give you a few examples, IBM, in the I think it was the 1930s, did a very serious calculation as to the need for computers in the world. Do you know what number they came up with? Three. The world need for computers was three. Luckily enough, they abandoned that idea. Uh, the patent officer for the United States of America around 1910 said that there would be no more patents because there was nothing more to invent. Man had invented everything that could possibly be invented. Imagine if Steve Jobs had believed him. And the one which I like is, it was the chairman of British Leyland. And again, some of you may not remember British Leyland, but back in the 60s and the 70s, Great Britain was a world force in the manufacturing of cars. And this was Lord St. John Smythe or something like that. And anyway, he's been interviewed on the radio. At this stage, the Japanese were just about breaking into the English market. And he was asked about Japanese cars. And he said, oh, rubbish, rubbish. There no threat at all to us. And the interviewer said, but, he said, but they're now offering a radio as standard in a car. And the chairman of British Leyland said, who would want to listen to a radio in a car? (laughs) And we don't have British Leyland anymore. They're all public ones and that's fine. But we have limiting ideas. We have firm convictions like I'm no good at this or I'm no good at that or this is the type of person I am. And we say things like, I'm only human. When we make a ridiculous error, we say, I'm only human. Imagine if you introduce somebody as being only human, or only something. This is only my wife. It would soon be your ex-wife, right? (laughs) Or this is only my son. You'd never put the word only in front of when you're referring to a human being, particularly a human being that you love. But we do that. We say, I'm only human. Or we form very broad convictions out of an individual experience. So we go to Italy on our holidays, and somebody robs our wallet, our purse, and we come to the the conviction that all Italians are criminals. Basically, they all belong to the Mafia. And never, ever, ever trust an Italian. Or particularly if you're male, 
you come to a conviction that you haven't left something in a particular place. So you can't find it, so let's say it's your keys, but you come to the immediate conviction that you have not left those keys in the master bedroom. So you search every other room in the house for the keys. In fact, you search some of them three times. And your wife might say to you, why don't you just check the master bedrooms? And you sort of angrily say to her, look, I know I didn't leave them there. And now you sit down on the couch exhausted and about five seconds away from a coronary and your wife, out of immense sympathy and an amazing level of patience which she's had to develop during the marriage, she goes upstairs, comes down with the slightest of smirks on her face, waving hypnotically a set of keys and saying she found them in the master bedroom. You're convinced that somebody put them there just to make you think that you're mad. The second thing that makes us live unintelligently is false emotions. So when we're in a hurry, we forget. You know, sometimes when you want to remember something the next morning, you say, now, I'm always leaving the house in a hurry, and I can't forget this, so I'm going to put it in front of the front door. It'll be there, and as I open the door, I'll see it. Do you ever do that? I have. <laughs> and, of course, in the morning, there you are in a rush, and you step over the thing to get out of the house. Thinking to yourself, why do people leave things in front of the front door all the time? They're trying to trip me up. When we are angry, we make mistakes, and we take the wrong turn, etc. When excited, we pay too much, like in an auction. And when we are greedy, we borrow too much in the hope of future wealth. And when fearful, we lose all our intelligence because we seek the impossible, i.e. security in this world. There is no security in this world. None of us may get home tonight. The ceiling could fall in. You're not in control. So you have no security. Just be very grateful if you do get home. But don't think you will. To ask for security for tomorrow is to live in constant fear. So a man cannot manifest intelligence without true or pure knowledge and true or pure emotions. Now, there's a need to understand the mind. If we're going to understand intelligence, we have to understand the mind. And the mind, according to philosophy, is not the brain. So there are different things. The brain is like a megaphone. It may allow words to manifest and be heard by another, but it has no words of its own. The words are spoken by a conscious human being through a machine like a megaphone. So the brain is neither intelligent nor unintelligent, but it's the means by which our intelligence is revealed to the world. To give you a sense of that, and I've used this example before, but when my father was, I think he was 61, might have been 62, he suffered a severe stroke. I mean, truly severe stroke, which destroyed the majority of the brain. So, he had very limited physical movement, very limited speech, and became childlike in a way. And my father now loved Jemison. You know Jemison whiskey? So... Up to the stroke, that was his drink. Jemison and ginger ale. 
after the stroke anyway, he would say, I want a. And then the word wouldn't come. And we would guess all sorts of, you want a book? He'd shake his head. Then we'd eventually say, drink? He'd say, yes. Or he would nod his head. And so we would then pour a double Jemison with ginger ale, right? And he wouldn't drink it. And we thought, you know, he said yes to a drink, and that's his drink. But in fact, what we discovered after about three months is that he wanted a Fanta. Now, I can tell you this, between the age of five and 61, he never drank Fanta. But anyway, after the stroke, that's what he wanted. He wanted the Fanta. Now, he knew what he wanted. He knew it was Fanta that he wanted, but the damaged brain couldn't produce the word. So this incredible frustration would come over him. It wasn't that he did not know what he wanted. He knew it, but the machinery couldn't express his desire. I don't know if you've ever cared for somebody with a stroke, you'll recognize that amazing frustration if their speech has been damaged. When they know the word that they want to use, but the brain won't allow it to manifest. Now, because the brain and the mind are separate, in fact, the body and the mind are separate. And it's very important that the state of the body does not affect the state of your mind. So if the body gets the flu, it is completely unintelligent to become a flu person. Some grumpy git that goes moping around the place, demanding tender loving care for about three weeks. Flu only affects the body, and it should be left in the body. There's no reason why you can't be blissfully happy and full of love and intelligence while the body is riddled with the flu or other illnesses. Our minds should be so strong that the state of the body does not and cannot affect it. The second aspect of the mind is there are not separate minds in truth. So it's not true that you have one mind and you have another. There's only one mind and we all have access to it. So it's a bit like there's one Google or one internet and we all have access to it. Ralph Waldo Emerson explained this. He said, there is one mind common to all individual men. Every man is an inlet to the same and to all of the same. He that is once admitted to the right of reason is made a free man of the whole estate. What Plato has taught, he may think. What a saint has felt, he may feel. What at any time has befallen any man, he can understand. But just like the internet, we go to certain sites or certain categories of information. We're just interested in those. The third aspect of the mind is that there is a conscious aspect, or it's normally called the conscious aspect, and the subconscious aspect of the mind. And the subconscious is where impressions are gathered and lie dormant. And these impressions, when they are activated, may overpower the conscious level. Now, we have been gathering these impressions since we were since we were in the womb, in fact, but let's take it from childbirth. 
And we don't know what we've been gathering. We don't know all those impressions that lie in our minds waiting to be drawn out to the surface and expressed. And a very simple, albeit extreme, example would be that if you take a child and he's reared in a household where the father, stroke husband, is a wife-beater. So the young child will observe his father beating his mother. And ordinarily, the child will hate the father for beating the mother. But that child, when it grows up and marries, has a far greater chance of beating his own wife. Because the impressions were implanted in his mind from very early on. He may not beat girlfriend, because that was not his experience. His experience was of husband beating wife. And even though he hated it as a child, it doesn't stop him doing exactly the same when he's older. So the conscious mind needs to be made strong so that it can deal with the subconscious when it arises. And it's very important to appreciate this constant storing of these impressions. And they're both good and bad. Now, we have one standard for what we store in our body and a completely different standard for what we store in our mind. And again, I've used this example before, but let's say I invite you to my home or you invite yourself to my home and I say I prepare a meal for you. So you let it slip that you like lobster thermidor or something like that. So I slave all day uh, making the thermidor sauce and burning this poor lobster alive effectively or boiling him alive. And uh, anyway, you arrive at the house and I bring you to the dining room. And I go, I say, but just going into the kitchen, going to bring out your meal. And, you know, have all the vegetables all nicely uh, around the surface of the plate. And as I'm coming through the kitchen door, I notice this tiny little creature swimming across the thermidor sauce and then dives in under the shell. Just as I come into the dining room. So I now approach you and being an honest uh, and good man, I say, look, I have to tell you something. As I came through the door, this creature swam across the thermidor sauce, dived in under the shell. But I recognize the coloring, and it's not poisonous, right? And it's also probably dead, you know, its legs up like this, uh, because the thermidor sauce was quite hot. And it, anyway, it accounts for less than a half percent of the entire volume of the meal. And enjoy your meal. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. All right. Despite the fact that everything I said is true, you don't want to eat it because you don't like the idea of this tiny little dead insect going inside here. Because we have very high standards about what passes between my lips. But what about the mental and emotional world? What about gossip, malicious gossip and fear and doubt and grieving? We don't mind we swallow that. Go on, tell us more. Did she really do that? My God, that's disgusting. <laughs> as the excitement builds up as you hear the story. Well, at least food is passed out of the body again. But what goes into the mind and heart is stored forever. The fourth thing is we need to understand is that there are three states of mind and you're only intelligent in one of them. And that doesn't mean that you're, you live intelligently one-third of your life, because you may not experience that one state, that 
one out of the three states very frequently. So the first state is the calm, centered state. The second one is the scattered, overactive state. And the third one is the dull state. And in case any of you missed that, the third one is the dull state, all right? When in the calm state, the mind is serene, illumined and concentrated. Do you think anybody looking at you using your mind would say, what a serene mind that person has? In that state, decisions are incredibly quick. They're sharp, precise. You don't have to look back. They come with certainty and they're always right. So, it can happen that you look across the room and for the first time you see this woman and you say, I'm going to marry that woman. It gives you that level of certainty. And at a much more mundane level, the memory in this state is unbelievably sharp. So somebody gives you a telephone number and you remember it. You can't forget it. Other times, somebody gives you a telephone number and you say, 08 what? And then they say, 08725 blah blah blah. And you say, 0872 what? And then for safety's sake, you write it down. And then you forget where you put the piece of paper. Right? The overactive state. And here you get excessive ambition and egoism and arrogance and discontent and feverish unrest. It's like a Christmas sale that lasts forever. The tense mind becomes narrow and it cannot reveal what it knows. So albeit you know somebody for 30 years, they come walking down the street and you can't remember their name. In this state we entangle ourselves more and more in our possessions and we have so many thoughts and our energy is dissipated so we often feel tired. Even when we do nothing, we still feel tired. And then there's the dull state. And in this state, we don't wish to exert ourselves in any way at all. So this is like a Sunday afternoon. You've eaten too much. Shouldn't have gone for that second helping of potatoes, but you did anyway because they were lovely and they were new. So you sit down on the couch and that sort of warm but dull feeling comes over you. And But you notice one thing, that there isn't enough coal on the fire you then begin to think and calculate how often does my wife come in will she actually enter the room before the fire goes out but you're too tired to get up and put some coal on the fire so you watch it going out and start to get colder and colder do you ever get to that state where you're even too tired to go to bed you think, God, I wish somebody just carried me up and took me in. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe I'll just sleep on the couch. And then the next morning you wake up like Quasimodo, needing a, 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 a chiropractor to straighten you out over the next six months. So we are full of dissatisfaction, but overcome by heaviness to do anything about it. And we cannot differentiate between right and wrong and are carried away by base instincts in us. We only act intelligently when the mind is in the first or the calm state. And again, to give you an example of that, every person can claim a moment of brilliance. Or one moment when you just 
thought or behaved outstandingly well. It might have been a wit where you said something which was incredibly funny. It was a great juxtaposition of words and everybody broke their hearts laughing. But it's only once or twice or a few times in your life. Well, if we could have that calm state of mind and heart, we would be supremely intelligent all the time. Ordinarily, the mind is continuously active. And we have to learn to switch it off. Not go to sleep or dream for it to be still and inactive when awake. And nothing is being demanded of us. The more we learn to switch it off, the more intelligent it will become. We think it's important to use the mind. So we're waiting at a bus stop. And we think, now, what will I think about? Because it'll be another 15 minutes before the bus comes, so I should think about something. We should make good use of this time. But you never think about anything useful when you're waiting for a bus. If somebody came up to you and said, what are you thinking about? You say, oh, nothing. And you're right. And if they paid a penny for your thoughts, they wouldn't get good value. So when you're waiting for a bus, just wait. Don't wait and think. There's no need for a mind when waiting for a bus. So the calm mind conducts intelligence, the active state scatters intelligence, and the dull state absorbs intelligence. It's like dust. You know the way, if you put a bright light on dust, it's still dull it just absorbs the light. So the calm state conducts intelligence, the active state scatters intelligence, and the dull state absorbs intelligence. Now, how do we access our intelligence? Because it is there. Well, there's a threefold preparation. The first thing is the purification of the mind. The second thing is the development of willpower. And the third thing is the perfecting of concentration. So you only have to manage three things and you will live with limitless intelligence for the rest of your life. The maxim is, he who is a master of his mind is a sage, who is a slave to it is a fool. And the above three allow us to become masters of our minds. A driver that cannot control the car cannot be called an intelligent driver. And a man who cannot control his mind cannot be called an intelligent man. Purification of mind and development of willpower are preliminaries to perfecting concentration. They serve the development of concentration. So, with regard to purification of the mind, the more we use our intelligence, the more it will be provided, and vice versa. So, at a very simple level, if we overuse calculators and computers, etc., so that our mind does less and less, then our access to intelligence will become less and less. For those who are in business, you see people, you say ten sevens, and you see them getting out a calculator. So use the mind. Frozen knowledge and false emotions, as we discussed, are the impurities in the mind. These impurities do not inhere in the mind, but adhere to the mind, like dust on a crystal. The crystal ever remains a pure crystal, ever shines, but is covered by a dust, making it appear dull. So how do we purify our minds? Well, whatever is not intelligent, stop doing it. So if I say to you, is it intelligent to put your hand in the fire? To consciously put your hand in the fire? The answer is no. 
and you probably only had to do that once in your life and then you learned the lesson don't put your hand in the fire now does overeating make you happy does it even fill you with pleasure no but have you only done it once in your life how many times do we do a stupid thing and not learn the lesson now it's very simple anything which leads to love happiness freedom peace contentment these sort of things is intelligent and anything that leads to misery and bondage and fear and doubt and all of these things is stupid or unintelligent so do not adopt the ideas and values or imitate anybody who's not free happy loving and at peace and consider those that you have imitated whose values you've adopted over the years and this might explain why we're not free, happy, loving and at peace so the following practice will help dissolve gross emotions like anger, greed, etc and there's a very simple philosophical principle some people try to control their anger by working on their anger let's say they have a bad temper so they try to work on their anger but you never work on your anger to overcome a vice you don't work on the vice at all you cultivate the opposite you cultivate the virtue if you cultivate the virtue it deals with the vice so never ever ever work on impatience just work on patience then you stop being impatient have the same standard for the mind as we have for the food for the body and note that a single weakness can ruin your life. One weakness can ruin your life. The tragedies of Shakespeare, that's what's so brilliant about them, because he highlights this. So Macbeth, an outstanding leader, a brave man, loyal, all these wonderful things, but he had a lust for power. And that one vice, if you want to call it vice, destroyed him. Othello was a, a king and a great, great man, but he suffered from jealousy, and jealousy destroyed him. And one way to give up things that are not particularly useful to your happiness, freedom, and love, etc., is to find something greater. You'll only ever be able to let go the lesser when you find something greater. So if the chocolate is greater than a slim body, you're going to eat chocolate. But if a slim body is greater than chocolate, well then you just not eat chocolate. And it should not be too hard to find something greater and more worthwhile than greed and anger and fear, etc. The second thing, as regards purifying the mind, is we can either fill the mind or develop the mind. And as Tolstoy said, the knowledge of a great number of trivialities is an insurmountable obstacle to knowing what is truly necessary. So give the mind good food. Study lives of great people. Study great literature. Listen to the best of music. Eliminate prejudice and misconception and doubt and superstition by cultivating right knowledge and true principle. Do not assert opinions on things you know nothing about. Don't be afraid to say that you do not know. Once you say you do not know, other people will be willing to teach you. 
Do not be afraid to listen to others. Remain a student all your life. The third factor to purifying the mind is to develop detachment. This is detachment in the philosophical sense. And the best way to give you a sense of what detachment is, is to tell you what attachment is, and then detachment is its opposite. So, attachment causes a man to be proud of his wealth, if he has it. Envious of those who have more wealth than him. Contemptuous of those who have less. Angry with those who stand in his way of getting more of it, or trying to deprive him of what he already has. Fearful of losing it, and worried about its security. The mind can become concentrated on terrible or miserable things which simply destroy it. So we need detachment. And there's a famous sort of a fourfold statement, and I think it's from the Buddha's tradition, and it's just outstanding as regards developing detachment. And it says, So let there be friendliness towards the good, compassion towards the unhappy, delight in that which is good and indifference to that which is evil. If you can master those four, you will enjoy detachment and therefore you'll be ever happy. The fourth way to purify the mind is to stop squandering our mental energy. We need it for development and use of willpower and concentration. A madman keeps blabbering outwardly. You know why sometimes you walk down the street and there's a guy walking down the street and he's talking to himself. You're talking out loud to himself. The only difference between him and you is you're talking inwardly. But you're saying it inwardly so nobody can know your lips aren't moving. Would you be happy if somebody could read your mind? Think you might change the contents of it if they could read your mind. So avoid useless talks and idle curiosity. Don't involve yourself in things which have nothing to do with you. Avoid purposeless work, futile controversies, wild fantasies, backbiting, daydreaming, hypothetical fears, and finding fault with others. If you do these things, the mind will purify. The second thing is to develop willpower. And no self-improvement is possible without willpower. No great achievement is possible without willpower. So great human beings like Lincoln or Churchill or Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela managed it because they had immense willpower. In relation to ourselves, compare what we know with what we actually do. And that indicates our level of willpower on a practical basis. So we may find ourselves with, I know what is good, but I don't have the willpower to do it. And I know what is bad, but I cannot resist from doing it. So what is willpower? It's that power which enables us to do what we know to be right and not what we know to be wrong under all circumstances. We become a reliable human being. And we need to believe that we can develop willpower and it's never too early and it's never too late. In most people there's a war going on inside of them between the rational and the emotional. You know the thing, I know I should get up, but I want to lie on. So one leg is hanging out of the bed and the other one is warm in under the blankets. Willpower is needed to pull back excess emotions and align them to reason. 
in life our will must be guided by reason because reason and willpower are necessary to overcome bad tendencies. And then emotion simply provides the right direction. So it is not suppression, because if you are mean to yourself, then you'll be mean to everybody. Regulated effort develops willpower. So if you happen to be studying, study at the same time and the same amount each day develop a daily rhythm for the mind just as we do for the body we tend to eat three meals a day and we fundamentally eat at the same time we go to bed fundamentally at the same time we do have a rhythm a natural rhythm for our bodies it's important to have one for the mind and the heart and if we are willing to follow a noble ideal it helps the development of willpower so ask yourself what do you live for and if you live for something great you will have all the self-control you need. Gandhi initially was a very weak man, plagued by all sorts of desires. But when he found his ideal, the, the ideal of freeing India, that India would become an independent nation once again, he became the most incredibly self-disciplined man. So choose something worth dedicating your life to. And if it is a strong or big idea, it will lend you the strength to achieve it. With willpower, we will do the right thing right now. We will eliminate procrastination and postponement from our lives. The third thing is perfection of concentration. Now, if you take light and you diffuse it, then all that you can see is hazy and superficial. If, however, the same light is concentrated into a laser beam, it will cut through iron. So it is essential that we have the ability to give all of our mind to one thing at a time. One way of looking at it is the only difference between one mind and the next is its ability to concentrate. For those of you, if there are any teachers in this room, that's what you'll notice amongst the children. Some can concentrate and they learn at will, and others can't concentrate. Now, it is only possible to concentrate in the calm state. Without concentration, knowledge cannot arise, and without knowledge, there's no power to act intelligently. A meditative person, a person who meditates, is bound to be more sensitive, more intelligent, more creative, more loving, more compassionate, because meditation takes the person back to where intelligence is, way beyond where information is stored, way beyond memory, to ultimate calmness and peace of mind. Thus, meditation develops concentration. So, forget about whether you have any belief in a spiritual aspect to life. If you simply would like to succeed in this world, then meditate. Because the meditative person will be able to concentrate. And if you can concentrate, you can learn at will. And there's a sort of famous anecdotal story told about a man called Swami Vivekananda. He's a great sage from about 120, 140 years ago. And he believed that all education was to do with teaching a child to concentrate. That if a teacher taught a child to concentrate then the child could learn at will. 
and he used to make this statement publicly and loudly over and over again. At one stage, anyway, his, um, one of his disciples asked him, did he really believe that a teacher only needed to teach the child to concentrate? And he said, yes. And uh, let's say that was on a Monday or a Tuesday. Well, on the Friday, somebody had delivered a set of Encyclopedia Britannica to the ashram or monastery. And over the weekend, Swami Vivekananda read nine volumes. Now, I don't know if, you've, if you have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica at home, but after about two pages, your mind begins to swim. Anyway, he read nine volumes. So they, they decided to test them. They went down to the library in the ashram, got out the nine volumes, and they opened the pages at random and asked him questions. And he answered them all perfectly. And he said, that's concentration. You learn at will. If you find that you have to read a book a second time in order to understand it, you have yet to perfect concentration. So, the second aspect of concentration is that it develops self-analysis. Then we get to know the mind better, our own mind. And then we're not deceived or tricked by the mind. So if the mind says, I'm only going to eat one biscuit, you know it's lying to you. Or I'll be home in five minutes you know that that mind is not speaking the truth. We will see potential errors earlier and their effects, and thus they can be eliminated at source. And with lack of concentration, energy pours out. Often we are doing many things at once, most of which are unrelated to the present moment. So, for example, rehearsing over and over again what you're going to say or do this afternoon. So we should do only one thing at a time in order that we perfect concentration. We should train the mind to stop wandering and stop daydreaming. Always attend, particularly to the small things. So when you're drinking a cup of coffee, taste every mouthful. I don't know if you've ever had the experience that you go into a place and you get an excellent cup of coffee, you taste it and you say, God, that's fantastic coffee. And the next minute, you're staring at an empty cup. You've drunk it without tasting it at all. And when you walk, feel every footstep hitting the ground. You can try it now and just see whether you do remember, see how good your concentration is. In about three minutes, we're going to break for a refreshment. See if you can get down the stairs, feeling every footstep on the ground. Assist access to intelligence by practicing alertness. So all the time, try to be more alert. Mother Teresa's maxim was to do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. It's the secret to living an extraordinary life. Just do ordinary things extraordinarily well. This requires and therefore develops concentration. So if we want to be intelligent, then do everything really intelligently. Now, some people would claim that they can't concentrate. But every creature can concentrate. A cat is not more intelligent than a human being. But have you ever seen a cat concentrating on a mouse? For us, we tend to concentrate only on that which we think we like or love. So our minds are like scattered light, revealing very little, but concentrated they would be as powerful as laser beams. If we are willing to love all, we will naturally concentrate all the time. So, for example, I love rugby. 
and that takes 80 minutes and then there's stoppage time and all of that and there's a the bit of conversation between so let's say about 115, 120 minutes I can absolutely concentrate for 120 minutes my eyes don't blink but there are lots of things I don't love and after three seconds my mind's all over the place and sometimes we wonder how do people how can people like collecting butterflies or moths well they can concentrate when they concentrate they're happy it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a rug it could be a moth and how do they manage to concentrate on moths when you can't it's because they love moths or they love collecting them the secret to concentration is to love everything and by dissolving the negative emotions we will find that we love more and more and with that our ability to concentrate will grow more and more on the way to a life of intelligence a man becomes enlightened he functions from intelligence alone spontaneously and not from memory information will certainly support the intelligence but not substitute for it or rule it so do not live from memory do not live a life of imitation do not follow others the last words of the Buddha were be a light unto yourself so what is the highest use of intelligence for the human being well a man can only be said to live intelligently if he can discriminate between what is true and what is false he then actually chooses what is true and thirdly and finally he enacts what he has chosen as true that is an intelligent life so purify the mind develop willpower and perfect concentration and then you will live with limitless intelligence and your life will reflect that limitless intelligence which we all are in truth that is the end of the talk so thank you very much so what would you like to ask Thank you, Mr. Mahal, for the, the talk. It was excellent and I uh, got a lot out of it. I think it was in the second point in the stupid person. Yeah. Yeah, so grieving and death and living. Could yeah. you go into a little bit deeper about that, please? Yes. Well, this always gets people. Because we think it is the most natural thing to grieve. That the wise, as in the Bhagavad Gita say, the wise grieve neither for the living nor the dead. So the proposition it is wise not to grieve they're mutually exclusive those two points of view our grief is based on an idea that the physical presence of the person is the most important thing and because we doubt the existence post the death of the body we think we have lost something the wise love at a much deeper level than we love so there is no loss for them when there is the physical loss of the body of the person that is loved ordinarily if you were to define love you would say a person who loves another 
would wish the best for the other. If you accept the Christian teaching, and I'm just going to take the Christian teaching, it says that a good man or woman on death goes to eternal bliss. If you truly love that person, you would be delighted for them. Because I can assure you that eternal bliss is an awful lot better than hanging around with you for another 30 years. <laughs> so you would be delighted for them. Just like if somebody won the Euro lottery or they got a promotion, you're very pleased for them. Let's say I have a child, I mean an adult child, and they win a promotion, but it involves them living abroad. There's only a part of me that is delighted, and there's another part of me that suffers. The idea is to have a love that is so pure that it only delights. It's like a lot of modern medicine it can deal with the disease, but it also kills an awful lot of that which is good in the body. So, it harms the body in its attempts to kill the disease. An awful lot of love has goodness in it. The love that we enjoy has goodness in it, obviously, but also the capacity to cause us misery. Now, what we want to find is that love which is so pure that it only produces happiness. And then I'm just going to give a couple of examples. The word grief obviously comes from grieve, and the word grievance is obviously the same root. So when you grieve, you have a grievance. So what is your grievance when somebody died? You have to examine that. And if I can just tell a story, which is a true story, but I was giving a talk out in Australia somewhere, and there was a man in the audience, and a question came up about grief, and I gave a, a similar sort of answer, and he came up to me at the end, and he had been drinking, it was very obvious that he had been drinking, but he was terribly distraught, so very, very upset, and he said to me, a woman who was a partner of my son, murdered him, and stabbed him to death, and that was a year ago, and she's on trial now in three weeks' time. And she has destroyed my life. He said, I had an outstanding relationship with my son. Now, I think the son was 35 years of age when he died. He said, I had an outstanding relationship with my son. We hunted together. We did all sorts of things together, worked together. And she took him away from me. And now his face was etched with grief and misery. So I said to him, well, the interesting thing is you have a choice. Now, I said, I'm not saying that this is easy to make this choice, but I said, I want you to reflect on this over and over again to see whether there actually is a choice. You have a choice of grieving, i.e. having a grievance for the 35 years, i.e. between the age of 35 and 70, which this woman deprived you of. Or you can be grateful for the 35 years of outstanding relationship you've got with an outstanding song. And that is the choice. And that's a choice we all have. We don't have to be a sage for this. My father died when I was 32. I am outstandingly grateful to have had such a father for 32 years. I don't have any complaints. How can I complain? I got 32 years. And even if I only got three days, I got three days. So the choice when somebody departs, is you can be grateful for what you receive, 
or grieve for what was apparently taken away. So the wise are always grateful. Just like if you get a present, you should never be disappointed with whatever present you get. You don't think, oh God, I was hoping for two pullovers or, you know, I was hoping for more. Whatever you're given, be grateful for. And if you're given a wife or a son or a daughter or anything or you hold an outstanding job for five years and then it all ends, be very grateful for those five years or whatever it is. So all of that helps. The other thing that's very important is this with regard to grief is that we think that people die. Now, we believe it, but we don't know it. The only thing we know is that the body definitely dies. But we don't know if the person dies. All right? So, before you start to grieve, the first thing you should find out is, what dies? Maybe the mind and heart and spirit of the person doesn't die. And, for example, say, now, this is not true, but, I, well, sorry, it is true at a level, but I'm going to exaggerate for emphasis. My wife when she was 24, was stunningly beautiful. Physically beautiful and mentally and emotionally beautiful. About 40 years have passed. The body is not in the same outstandingly beautiful condition that it was in, albeit she's still a remarkably good-looking woman. But has my love for her declined? The fact that the body has decayed. So why would my love change if the body went from the next stage of decay just to death? Why? If it's unaffected with decay, why couldn't it remain unaffected if it just decomposed? And so what we have to do is we have to find a love, such a deep connection with a person, that it's nothing to do with the physical. I have a son who lives in New York, and I have a daughter who lives in Melbourne. My love for them is not affected at all because of either whatever it is, 6,000 miles or... 20,000 miles. I still love them as much. Whenever I bring them to mind, I'm not filled with loneliness, I'm filled with joy. I think of my son and I think of my daughter. I think, gosh, they're just outstanding people and I adore them. So that's the choice. So it's not a matter that the wise do not have love in their hearts. It's not a matter that they suppress or they're very tough guys or or women who can take a beating from life. It's not like that at all. It's just that they love at a higher level. When a child is very, very young, and the mother leaves the room, it cries. Now, if you saw a 14-year-old, and every time his mother went out of the room, it burst into tears, you'd say, grow up. Well, we should grow up emotionally. So when a person walks out of the room forever, we don't cry. Does that give a sense of it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's it. I'm just wondering, does access to limitless intelligence guarantee good action in all people? Or action for good in all people? Yes, it does. It's an excellent question, by the way, because could it produce sort of like the master criminal or the Hitlers of this world? Limitless intelligence. It's intelligent to to use intelligence for happiness. Right? And the reality is that we do get happiness from the happiness of others. So, if you're a father 
and you may not like going to circuses yourself, but in bringing your son or daughter to a circus and seeing the delight on their face, you are delighted. If you use your intelligence, first of all, you're free from error yourself and you will live to maximize your own happiness or to attain perfect happiness, but your happiness will be magnified also by helping others to find or attain perfect <coughs> happiness. So intelligence will always go for that which yields more and more and more happiness. If you go to, say, a fruit and vegetable shop, and they've got all these tomatoes there, and let's say they're not packed in you know, cellophane bags, they're loose, what you do is you pick them up, and you look for the ones that will make you most happy which are the ones that don't have bruises on them and are not green or whatever. That's a natural thing, to look for that which maximizes happiness. The man or woman who accesses limitless intelligence will always use that intelligence to maximize happiness. And since the happiness of others increases your happiness, you will always act in, then, let's say, a so-called good way. Is that reasonable? Does that make sense? The word ignorance is a very good word because we think of ignorance as absence. So we say a man is ignorant because he doesn't know. But if you look at the word, a man is ignorant because he ignores what he knows. Do you see the difference between the two? So he knows that he should be kind to others. But he ignores it. Now, that is always painful. And I'm just going to take something very minor. We'll make you a child. I'm going to assume you've gotten over this now. But as a child, when you had the sweets, and you know you should have shared them with others, but you want them for yourself. So you try to unwrap them while they're still in your uh, pocket, of your hand in your pocket, and hope that they, they won't hear the crackling of the, of the paper. And then you try and slide the sweet or up your arm, across your shoulder, and into your mouth without anybody seeing. But you never enjoy it. You don't enjoy it because it's a selfish act. It has to be concealed. It has to be secretive. It has to be unknown to others. And there's always the fear of being caught and all of that sort of stuff. So acts which are selfish or ignorant cannot yield happiness. It's an error. You think it yields happiness, but it doesn't. I don't know if that helps as well. So that's not using intelligence? No, no. It's ignoring what you know. There is delight in receiving, undoubtedly. But there's also delight in giving. So why only have half the happiness? So if you just receive the sweets and you keep them all to yourself, you'll have half the happiness. But if you can receive and give, you get all the happiness. And maybe just to develop it slightly, there was a very interesting thing that I read once, and it was by the Dalai Lama. And I was giving a talk on compassion. And so... If you want to know about compassion, always go to the Buddhists, because they are outstanding, or particularly outstanding when it comes to compassion. And he made an amazing point. He said, for a man to lack compassion, he has to put a hardness around his heart, so that he cannot experience the misery of others.
Is that okay? And I think that we'd recognize that. But, he says, in putting a hardness around his heart so that he cannot experience the misery of others, he then cannot experience the happiness of others. It's not that the misery is short out and the happiness gets true. The price he pays for hardness of heart is the happiness of others also doesn't make him happy. That's a colossal price to pay. Tolstoy, who was a very wise man, made the point that man finds happiness in serving his fellow man, i.e. in either dissipating or eliminating misery in others or increasing happiness. That provides happiness. So the good are not reluctantly good. You know when you were a child, let's say you were brought up as a Christian and either priest or whoever said to you, now you're to be a good boy. You know, oh, I don't really want to be a good boy. You know, I want to have fun. But the interesting thing is this. That's a sort of a reluctant goodness. That's a goodness under instruction. But wise goodness is where you know that in the good deed which cares for others, in the increasing of their happiness, your happiness is maximized. Now, you don't do it for selfish reasons. It's just a natural byproduct. As I said, like you bringing your son or daughter to a circus, which you wouldn't do if there was no son or daughter. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Okay, very good. Mr. Mahal, I just wanted to ask you about the attachment issue and just understanding that we're here for happiness. Yes. We're here to use our limitless intelligence for yes. happiness. That it's the fine line between attachment and actually enjoying the things of the earth, which presumably we're meant to do as well. Mm. So it's just getting that boundary yes. of where exactly we're not attached to it yes. or we're detached from it, yes. but still with enjoyment. Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, he said, the one thing you've got to be very careful of, if you turn an object into a possession, then it will possess you. It's very interesting. So, if you turn your car into a possession, if it breaks down, you become miserable. It determines your happiness. And if you get a service and it's going excellently, you feel happier. So you become a slave or subject to your possessions. The secret to detachment is to use but don't possess. So when it's sunny, go on the beach, you know, whatever delights you. Enjoy the sun. When the sun goes down, enjoy sunset. Enjoy the darkness. Have a candlelight dinner. Whatever it is. Everything offers its opportunity. But to actually, at sunset, say, I'm so miserable because it's another 12 hours till the sun comes up again, it's just ridiculous. When you're a child, you might say, oh, I'd love to go to the beach. And so you go to the beach, and there you are, playing around, building sandcastles, blah, blah, blah. But you know the way when you say, it's time to go home? And children start to scream. And do all sorts of things. Well, we're a bit like that. We, we just don't scream the same way. But we don't like the good to come to an end. All right? Because we're attached to it, and therefore possessed by it. There are strings. We're like puppets. 
like years and years ago, I loved sunny holidays. So a good holiday was a holiday with 14 days of sunshine. It's very important that it was sunny, right? So you check out things, the average temperature last year, maybe the last five years, check all these things out. So you'd wake up in the morning, and because a good holiday was a sunny holiday, what was the first thing you did when you woke You looked out the window of the bedroom. Oh, for God's sake, there's a cloud there. You know, <laughs> cloud. <laughs> oh, the day is ruined. I'd have to read a book now or something, or talk to my wife. You know, misery. So it's just ridiculous. So... As you become older, what you do is on sunny days, maybe you Sunday, on cloudy days, you go to museums and art galleries or whatever, or you read a book, or you have an outstanding conversation with your wife, or whatever it is. That's the way to be. Go with the flow. Always go with the flow. We get fixed. We think that certain things are better. We think that youth is better than old age. But being a child has its own glory. Being teenager has its own glory. Being a young adult has its own glory. Being a mature adult has its own glory. Being an elderly person has its own glory. Every age offers something. Just like every season offers something. So, the important thing, man is free. Never be possessed. The way to not be possessed is, is to have no possession. So, in the book, the Prophet, by Cathil Gibran. See, we think that children are our children. But he says they're not your children. They are life's longing for itself. It is simply life wishing to express itself. So you're a means by which a child comes into the world. But they're not yours. And that's most important. That you never think of them, that that son or daughter belongs to me. Man is free. So, you should never be possessed by your love. You should never be trapped in your love. Our eldest daughter got married at, I think she was 24. Prejudiced as I am, I think she's an outstanding woman, right? Excellent woman. And she remained at home until she married. And I remember on the wedding day, she said, Dad, I just want to say some things to you. So she said things which virtually reduced me to tears of her gratitude for the family and the fathering and the mothering and all of that. And that was all outstanding, see? So we drive to the church, we link arms, walk up the aisle to outstanding music, and she's, in a way, clinging to me like daughter to father. And you could feel the love between us. Anyway, the wedding takes place. She gives her heart to this man. And as we walk down the aisle, she's walking down with her husband. I'm walking with my wife, five yards now. She doesn't look back. <laughs> she didn't look back to see if I was walking behind her. She was gone. That doesn't mean that she doesn't love me. But she had given her heart to a, a man that she wanted to share her life with. Does that make sense? And, you see, people before the wedding said to me, are you getting upset talking your daughter? Going? I said, there's no greater joy for a father of a daughter that she finds a man who will assist her to find great happiness. 
you so you're not losing a daughter at all. She has found a partner for life, and that should please a good father. So that's the way it is. Literally, if you have a daughter and she's 24 and she stays at home, walk her up the aisle, arms linked. When you get to the top of the aisle, take her arm and link it with the man and walk away. The job's over. It's over. It's complete. So it's a bit like finishing work. There's no need for any sadness. You've completed the job. It's always nice to complete a job. And when you die, you've completed the job. That's the way it is. Which is excellent. Those of us who remain on have to keep working at it. But those who die are finished. They're allowed to clock out. Nobody's ever miserable clocking out of work. People don't say, oh God, it's 5.30, isn't it appalling? <laughs> Every delighted. So, does that give a sense to it? Yeah, very good. Anybody else? Is this gentleman here? You were saying that when you die, and the Christian belief is that you're in bliss. Yes, eternal bliss. So, what do you say then about suicide and that sort of thing? Well, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? Yeah. Okay, well, so I'm going to give a Christian viewing point. Is that okay? You said you were a Buddhist, I might say something else. Or you're a Hindu or whatever. But anyway, just like if you were going to meet somebody very, very, very important, I think you might get your hair cut, you might have a shower that morning, wear excellent clothes, and present yourself at your very best. That's a natural thing to do if you're in the presence of somebody whom you love and is very important. But okay? So if your daughter's getting married, you don't say, wear me Levi's. You get dressed up because it's an important occasion. So, I think you can take it, if you accept the Christian teaching, that if you're going to come into the presence of God, you will be at your best. Okay? Or you need to be at your best because you are meeting the very best. So, the possibility is that where a person doesn't live a particularly good life, or they're not at their best, or they take their life, then it is necessary that there be a preparation before they can enter into the presence of God. So the concept within the Christian teaching is that of purgatory. The idea is, if you were a saint, you came in the front gates, and St. Peter said, come on in, you're right, we've got the seat reserved to you. But the Christian church did allow for the concept of purgatory, so that if you weren't at your best, you needed to go through a period of purging so that you were at your best. But the Christian church has got a lot more sentimental. It basically says everybody goes to heaven. You all go immediately. just may not be organized like that. That concept of purgatory may be valid, but there may be a need for additional work after death before you can be in the presence of that which is perfect. So, I would imagine, I don't know the laws, the spiritual law, but I would imagine that a, a human being, no matter for what reason, who rejects the life that was given to him or her, would need a certain 
purification before they entered into the presence of that which is pure and perfect. That would be my viewing point. Does that make sense, or it doesn't? So, out of fear, then, you might not do it. Well, let me put it to you like this. I think it's in the Old Testament. And again, I'm just going to stick to the Christian tradition. I think it says that fear is the beginning of wisdom. Fear is the ultimate. For example, in the Republic of Ireland, they introduced the penalty point system. I presume you have the same thing in, in Northern Ireland. Now, why did they introduce the penalty point system? And the reason why is because people in the Republic of Ireland were not reasonable enough, nor loving enough, to drive appropriately. Or didn't have a, enough sense of duty or virtue to drive appropriately. So, if they're not going to respond to reason and love and a sense of civic duty, we'll use the fear factor. Right? We will make them drive properly with the concept of punishment, in the sense of you might lose your license. Is that okay? Fear is always low-grade. As a father, you can validly use fear to bring about good behavior, but only as a last resort. You first of all appeal to love or reason. Virtue would be the next level. Then you would appeal to duty. And if all else fails, you say, I'll cut your legs off if you don't do that. <laughs> or whatever. If a person is induced to doing good out of fear. Excellent. But only as a last resort. And if I can just tell a story, which I've told many, many times. I read a couple of books on suicide, because I wanted to understand it. I have not been plagued with suicidal thoughts. And so, when you're not plagued with them, it could be sometimes very hard to understand how somebody does this. So I read a couple of what I believe were outstanding books about suicide or suicideology. And it was incredibly informative. And one very, very, very important point is that for a person to commit suicide, they have to see it as the only option. If they think there's a choice between suicide and another act, they cannot commit suicide. Now, cannot. But if they think it is the only possible action, then they can. There's a man in the School of Philosophy, and he's a doctor. And when he was a younger doctor, and he hadn't become a consultant at this stage, he was working in the hospital, and a young man was brought in who had, I think, cut his wrists. Anyway, he'd made an attempt to commit suicide. Being good doctors in a good hospital, they patched him up and attempted to restore him to full health. But this doctor on his rounds every day would meet this young man, and the young man said to him, by the way, when I get out, I'm going to do it properly the next time. See? And so my good friend, the doctor, said to him, why do you want to commit suicide? And the young man said, because I want to bring an end to the misery. The doctor said to him, how do you know it brings an end to the misery? that planted a doubt in the young man's mind. And all I know is that years later, or quite a while later, the man was alive. Because the doubt was in his mind. So, if you have the company of somebody who has suicidal thoughts, you would always appeal to reason, appeal to love, appeal to all the sense of duty, to mother, family, nation, all these things. If all of that fails, put a doubt in their minds. Or give them an option. In this book, there was a young lady who was reared by a very strict 
father whom she absolutely adored. Very strict religious man. And she became pregnant and wanted to commit suicide rather than tell the father. She was uh, brought into the presence of this suicidologist. He said, what about if you, you know, went to a university far away, had the child, let it be adopted, blah, 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 blah. He gave her about seven choices of what could happen. One of them, which was suicide. And he gave her six other choices. And he said, write them down in order of preference. And suicide came about number four out of the seven. He said, well, okay, well, just let's do the first one. And she didn't commit suicide. So, that's just at a practical level. Very useful thing. And it doesn't even have to be suicide. If you know somebody and they're going to do something incredibly stupid and they won't listen to reason, I don't know if you've ever given outstanding advice to somebody and they just reject it, or then plant a doubt in their minds. Like if a man is going to rob a bank, say, there could be a policeman around the corner. <laughs> you plant the doubt. The great thing about doubt is it stops action. Do you ever come up to a T-junction and you doubt whether you go left or right? It stops you. So the one great way of stopping a human being doing a bad action is to consciously plant a doubt in their mind. One thing that is very helpful, now this would not appeal to somebody who is gripped by the idea of suicide. In a household, it is very useful to implant the concept that everything is a gift. So I told my children that the clothes that they wore were not their clothes. They were a gift from me to them, out of love. Their education was a gift from me and their mother, to them, out of love. Everything is a gift. Even the kindness in your heart is not your kindness, but kindness expressing itself through your heart. You're just a medium for it. And this life is a gift. It's not your life. You have been gifted it. And if you get the sense of a gift or being lent something, you will tend to care for it. Do you have a car? Now, you think you own the car, which allows you to keep it in a particular state. I'm not going to do this to you, but we could, at the end of this talk, come down and have a look at the boot of your car. Right? And for a lot of us, that might be embarrassing. Is that okay? As we see the sweet paper wrappings and all of that sort of stuff and the smelly golf shoes and a few other things in the boot of your car. Now, let's say I lend you my car and I lend it for a month and you're going to give it back to me at the end of the month. In what state will you give it back to me? In excellent state. It will be cleaned, all that sort of stuff. Because you will not see it as your own. One of the terrible things about possessions or ownership is you think it gives you the right to abuse because it's mine and I can do whatever I want to with it. But if you don't see it as your own, it tends to bring out a better aspect of your being where you say, I will care for it so long as I have the use of it. So if you can plant in a family this concept that everything is a gift, well, all the friends we have, they're a gift to us to enrich our lives, the food we have, like, I don't grow food. There isn't a human being who can grow a carrot. Try growing a carrot. What you need to do, you need to use the earth. It's the earth that grows the carrot for you. See everything as a gift. And when you do that, 
first of all, you won't waste your life, you won't waste your intelligence, and you certainly wouldn't take your life. So, if that helps at all. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Mahal, for a, a lovely lecture, uh, very enlightening. In the lecture, you mentioned that it's not good to dwell in the past or have concern for the future or worry for the future and to be in the present moment. Could you let us know your thoughts or outlook on setting goals for your life? Is that necessary or unnecessary? There's nothing wrong with, let's say, intention. But when you turn into a hard and fixed plan, then it makes you stupid. So, if you're taking your family to the south of France on their holidays, and you're leaving on June the 15th, it's not a matter of waking up on the morning of June the 15th and saying, let's purchase some tickets. Is that okay? It is reasonable to buy the tickets whatever length of time in advance as is appropriate. And if you're driving, it is reasonable to set out a route on the map. That you know, you're landing in La Havre and we're going to Monaco. So, okay, so we have to go down all the way through France. It is reasonable to set that out. What is totally unreasonable is having set it out to get angry because there are diversions. That's totally unreasonable. Meet the diversions. If they say turn left, don't get angry because you have to turn left. Because your plan was to go straight on. Meet the event in the moment. Respond to the event in the moment. And I'm just going to exaggerate. But when I did it, I would set out the journey from La Havre, let's say, to Monaco, like one of Hitler's generals. So, we will get to wherever it is. The boat will land at 7. At 9.45, we shall be in the following town, where we will have a 20-minute break. So, at 5 past 10, we shall then start our journey again, and then the whole thing mapped out, right? And people will only go to the loo in the 9.45 to 5 minutes past 10 break. So, and we'd be on the boat, and the boat would pull into La Havre, and I'd say to everybody, right, everybody to the loo. Adolf has spoken. You will all go to the loo now, because the first stop is at 9.45 in 2 hours and 45 minutes time. So they all terrified go into the loo type of thing, and they'd all come out, and then we would get into the car, and we'd drive off. We wouldn't be out of La Havre, right, before we say, I have to go to the loo. I say, oh, for God's sake, can you not hold on for another 500 kilometers? There'll be a part of you which says, I'm going to teach this child a lesson. I'm not stopping. Or I'm going to torture them with agony so that they learn a lesson. That's what happens when your plan becomes a demand on the creation. So as an intention that you get to a certain village or town at 9.45 and have your first loo break and cup of tea, fine. But you're not master of the universe. The creation is going to unfold the way it's going to unfold. Your job is to be in the present moment to respond to it fully, reasonably and lovingly, whatever way it is.
That's the key. Krishnamurti. Have you ever heard of Krishnamurti? Well, anyway, he was, uh, again, a famous sage, and I won't go into his history, but he, he resided in the UK for a while, and he's been interviewed on the television in the 60s, and somebody said to him, what about the stresses of modern life? And Krishnamurti said, I don't know these stresses of modern life. And the interviewer got a bit irritated. You know, but you know, you know the, 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 the stresses of modern living. And he says, no, I don't know. Now, the interviewer was now completely stressed out trying to make the point about the stresses of modern living. And Krishnamurti obviously was compassionate towards him. He said, look, it's very simple. You're driving from A to B. And on the route, you come across a sign which says there's a diversion. You just divert, and after a while you rejoin your original journey and you arrive at your destination. If you do that, there's no stress. Our reaction to diversions is somebody's doing this to me, and it's ridiculous. And I'm going to write to the local MP and complain about how they keep on filling in potholes when I'm trying to get to the south of France. People ever tell you the letters they're going to write to the newspapers? First of all, 99% of them never get written. And secondly, they're mostly maniacal letters with no sense to them at all. And this is people resisting life. So fine to have a plan. Fine to set a goal. And a goal would be like, say, an archer. What Mr. McCann said, if you don't aim for the bull's eye, you have no chance of hitting it. So fine that you're aiming for the bull's eye. Do your best and accept the outcome. When you turn it into a demand, and when success becomes a fixation, well then, it just makes you miserable. But it's right to aim for the bull's eye. Otherwise, you can't hit it. If you back up then to the intention, I mean, if you're already happy and blissful exactly where you are, you wouldn't have any attention to go and look at France. Well, you would. Because, you see, what we do is we go to France, let's say to the south of France, to become happy or happier. The wise man goes to France to express his happiness in the south of France. Not to find it in the south of France, but to express it in the south of France. Let's say there is the nature of a sportsman here. I delighted in expressing that sportsman nature in rugby and a number of other sports. We spend our lives searching for happiness and trying to extract it from people and events. The wise man lives his life expressing his happiness everywhere. Let's say you've worked your life trying to earn money. The wise man is already a multimillionaire. All he's doing is spending it. He's not earning it. So if you can think of happiness, he already is happy. Now he delights in expressing it in different ways. But you and I are miserable and we're searching for happiness in different things and different people. So the idea is be happy and express it everywhere in as many and varied ways as you can. So you would express it then with the natural talents that you have? That Absolutely. You would, you would use it. But express it in Le Havre. Express it when the child wants to go to the loo. Express it in the entire journey. Express it when you arrive. Express it when you return. You know, you look at people, say, about a fortnight before their holidays, and they say, oh, I'm so looking forward to my holidays. 
So they're miserable for a fortnight before they set off. So why not be happy now? And happy on your holidays. And happy when you return. The child delights in doing the washing up. We delight in it being finished. No child would ever invent a dishwasher. Why would you deprive yourself of the delight of doing washing up? But we hate the washing up. We only enjoy the finishing one. So we invent a machine to do it for us. But then we have to work hard in order to pay for the machine. And then the machine breaks. That's what it is. It's a never-ending search for happiness. And you never find it. So be happy and express it everywhere. Would the child still be happy doing it every night of the week? Oh, yes. <laughs> i just give you the example. For a child, nothing repeats itself. It's always new. And the example would be a joke. You know when a child learns off its first joke? How many times does it tell you? Thousands and thousands of times. Daddy, can I just tell you the joke again? And it tells it again, and it laughs up roarsly as white the chicken crossed the road. But you know the story. You know the punchline. So you can't enjoy it, because you've heard it before. Imagine only needing one joke to laugh all your life. Wouldn't that be great? You only needed one <laughs> joke. And every time you told yourself the joke, you laughed. You see, for a child, nothing repeats itself. Everything is brand new. It's fresh. For us, we already know. Say, The Sixth Sense. Did you see that film? Yeah, it was a fantastic, just a great film, great twist at the end. How about watching it a second time? A third time and a fourth time. You know the twist. But a child will do it. Do you ever buy a child a book? How many times does a child read the book? Or you get it a video. And you watch it over and over and over again. Because the child is happy and is simply expressing or revealing its happiness everywhere. We're miserable searching for it. Miserable may be too strong a term, but we're less than fully happy. And we think a fortnight in Barbados would add to my happiness. Is the child still happy when it's screaming its head off? Yeah. It's only the body. It's just a pain in the body, that's all. The actual being itself is free. Let's just take an adult. It is possible as an adult to have a pain in your body and to be miserable. It's also possible to be an adult and have a pain in your body and to be perfectly happy. Anybody ever play sport? You're in the cup match and the body was in bits as you exerted yourself to win the game. So even though there's a lot of pain in the body, you're still blissfully happy. You can say the body's not happy, but that's nothing to do with you. That's a bit like, you know, if the big end is going in the car, it shouldn't affect you. It's not your big end that's going. It's the big end of the car. When you come into the office late at 10 o'clock, don't think that you broke down. Yeah, people do that. They say, oh God, I broke down this morning. And you think that was very effective psychiatry. It only took an hour and they were fully recovered. <laughs> what they mean is their car broke down. Okay, the car broke down. But don't you break down. Does that make sense? You're not your body. You're not six foot tall. The body is six foot tall. You're not old. 
The body may be old or young or whatever, but you're not. Don't think that your age is determined by when the body was conceived or born. That determines the age of the body and nothing else. Do you ever know a 60-year-old with the mind of a child? In the sense of incredible purity and innocence and kindness and goodness. You can have an 80-year-old body and you can have the mind of an infant. Sweet and innocent. When a child looks at its father or mother, it sees perfection. That's what it says. Nobody else in the world sees you as perfect. But a child does. And the reason it sees you as perfect is because it's innocent. So what is it innocent of? It's innocent of good and evil. And when you're innocent of good and evil, you see perfection everywhere. And the curse of man, if you take the Christian teaching, was he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that, his misery began. You ever bring out somebody to a restaurant, say for a meal, glorious meal, person looks at the menu and says, uh, yeah, I'll have the salmon bass. And the waiter says, I'm very sorry, sir. The salmon bass is not on tonight. And the person becomes miserable. There's only eight other choices of main course. But they didn't get the one they wanted, the good salmon bass. Now they've got the evil lamb chops. Imagine if you have no knowledge of good or evil. Like all our knowledge is relative. So take a very simple example. If you were the only human being on the earth, would you be tall or small? How would you know? There you are, two foot six, strutting around the creation like a giant. <laughs> you, know, you need somebody else to think you're tall or small. That's all relative knowledge. That's the knowledge of good and evil. So be like a child. where you have no knowledge of good and evil. And all you see is perfection everywhere. So it's raining today. Excellent. This is a day for stamping in puddles. Particularly with new shoes. Right? Right. Right. That's fantastic. I can destroy these in one day. Marvellous. I love rainy days. But what about the two children that are fighting over the teddy bear? Well, you see, that's the innocence of the child. A child cannot steal. It could empty your wallet and it hasn't stolen a penny because it has no concept of stealing. You know why it has no concept of stealing? Because it thinks the entire creation belongs to it. It's all here for me. Mummy and Daddy don't exist for each other. They only exist for me. So that's why if they're talking, I'm going to interrupt them. So they have no use for talking to each other. They're only here to talk to me. And Daddy doesn't exist to watch the Heineken Cup. He exists for me, so I'm very happy to stand in front of the telly and talk to him and show him the eggs I drew at school today. Everything is for me. So when a child goes down the road and he brings back a bicycle, and you say, that's not your bicycle. He hasn't a clue what you're talking about. As far as he's concerned, the entire creation is for him. And you know the interesting thing is, he's right. It is all for you. Who does the actor play for? Plays for the audience. It's all for you. But don't think you is this separate mind and body. You are spirit, and that spirit is everywhere. So all is for all. The error comes when you think it's all for me. Little me. That's when you begin to hide teddies where your siblings can't find it. So even when I'm not using it, nobody else can either.
and I know where it is. <laughs> Do you recognize that? Crazy. Can you just expand a little bit on the idea of universal intelligence and our participation in it, as yes. opposed to having individual intelligence? Very good. We think that we have individual minds, and the reason we think that is because we have individual bodies and individual brains, and we sort of associate the mind with the brain, and therefore think we have individual minds. But a way of looking at it is, if you can imagine the internet, and all information is stored on the internet, every one of us has a computer and Wi-Fi access. We have access to all that is on, let's say, the internet, but because of desires, preferences, the way we were reared, we only access certain information. We are naturally drawn towards some information and not to others. It's exactly the same with the mind. Your mind is an inlet to the universal mind, or you have an inlet to universal mind. There are things which you access and you now understand you have excellent knowledge on, and then there are other things you don't access due to bias, prejudice, preferences, etc. What the highly intelligent or the really intelligent people do is they have no limits as to what they access. So they just access universal intelligence. And you can do that. So what Plato has taught, you may think. What a saint has felt, you may feel. What any man has ever understood, you may understand. That's important to know that. As a human being, you've been granted access to all intelligence. In the same way, be pitied if somebody gave you a present of a Ferrari and you drove it at two miles per hour. So, to have this amazing intelligence available to us and then to use just a tiny portion of it is a terrible underutilization of your human capacity. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. You got my attention at the beginning when you mentioned boredom as a symptom of being cut off from intelligence. I used to be a very angry person, and as a result of a lot of meditation, this course, and everything, I'm not as angry as I used to be. But I miss the drama, and I miss the anger, and I'm very serene, but I'm bored. I, I've become boring, I am bored, and so when you said bored, I thought, oh, okay. Would you mind expanding on the boredom a symptom might be cut off? Yes. Well, inflicting your anger on others as a source of drama and excitement in your life is an interesting viewing point. I have to admit it's a new one for me. I hadn't thought of that one before. Let's say you love somebody. Let's say you love a child. Are you bored with it? No. You can bring excitement into your life through drama, or you can bring it in through love. Once you love, then everything is interesting. It's so interesting. And you want to give yourself to it fully, and the more you give yourself to it, the more it returns to you. So, that's what you need. You need to love everything. You mightn't call it drama, but it would be the fullness of experience of everything. If you say to me, do I remember what I ate for breakfast, let's make it 37 years ago? No, I don't. But do I remember holding my firstborn child in my hands for the very first time? Absolutely.
because love makes that such a rich experience that you have it for life. The key is instead of inflicting your anger on the world, you give your love to the world. And then you will have the richest of experience in every aspect of life. If you could only peel a potato with love in your heart, you would get such satisfaction from doing it. Everybody looks for bigness. So, if somebody said, actually I'm going on holidays for a fortnight, and you ask them where, and they said, Bray Head, which is just outside Dublin, you think nothing. If they said, actually I'm going into one of these shark cages of the west coast of Ecuador, think, fantastic. But you don't need the extreme for happiness and satisfaction. What you have to be able to do is find that full satisfaction in the little things. Do you remember when you were a little child and, let's say, you're about to peel an orange and somebody said to you for the first time, see if you can peel it without breaking the peel at all. And you actually managed it. The entire peel was one continuous piece. And you thought you'd scored a goal in the FA Cup final in Wembley, you know. Because that's where you get satisfaction, in giving yourself fully to things. You might use the word drama, but life is exciting, full, rich, and it's found in everything. There's no point in going to Spain anymore. We have to keep on doing more and more extreme or exotic things. We have to jump off the side of cliffs with a little bit of elastic in our leg and just miss the ground by about six inches before we can get the slightest modicum of excitement into our lives. Does that help at all? Yeah. Okay. Bob Gellar, what's the note of anger really that he reacted where he did? And my point is, don't it very often take something like a very strong emotion to respond and to get others above all to respond? Yes. Well, what about using the strongest emotion of them all? Love. Yeah, I know, but will you I get know, others to with you, though, you know? You, so people will not follow a man of love, like, say, Jesus. There's more following Bob Geldof. Not saying that, no. What you'll find is this. If you want things to change in the world, Use that which is most powerful to bring about change. What Mandela achieved in South Africa was remarkable. Did it have a hint of anger in it? You incarcerate a man for 27 years and he comes out and what does he do? He says to all the people, let's build a new South Africa together. You see, that's the power of love in the form of forgiveness. Yes, people like, I don't want to comment on people, whether it be Churchill or Bob Geldof, yes, they have been moved by anger. They've been stirred out of the dull state into the agitated state. So certainly more is achieved in the agitated state than in the dull state. But the greatest achievements of them all are achieved in the calm state, which is an intelligent, loving state. If I can give you an example. And Mr. McLaren, again, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, made this statement. He said, Do not be a hater of injustice, but be a lover of justice. 
Now that's all he said. But I reflected on it. Those who hate only divide. And those who love must unite. So those who hate, they agitate followers into action. So the animal rights movement, full of hatred, for let's say a just cause, without getting into the debate on that. But all there is is agitation. A much more powerful method of transformation and bringing about change is to love. It's the most powerful force of them all. So you're right in what you say. If a man or woman is in the dull state, it might be good to stir them into agitation. But having got them to agitation, then there's another step. Again, if I may say so, the Pharisees had got to righteousness. This is right and that is wrong. See, you couldn't even take a sheep out of a ditch on a Sunday. But Jesus came along and said, there's another step. You can go beyond that. You can go from righteousness, which is often filled with a lot of anger, to love, which unites, which dissolves the enemy. Anyway, that's the possibility. So, I would attempt to do it myself, and I would encourage others to go to the ultimate, because it's the most powerful. And while Bob Geldof has done an outstanding piece of work, I don't believe that his words will be studied in 2,000 years' time. So. Do you see, Shane, wisdom and intelligence as one and the same, or not? Yes. Thank you. They are one and the same. In fact, you could say it like this, if you're a religious person, God is known by many names, but has no name. Now, why is that? Why would one person use the word wisdom, another one use the word intelligence, another one use the word love? It's basically because we're not all the same in how we use our humanity. Some of us refer to our emotional center, and some of us refer to our intellectual center, just by nature. And if you're a teacher of mankind, you have to facilitate the different natures. So sometimes you refer to reason. And those who access their intellectual center easily say, oh yes, that makes sense to me, I understand that. The ones who access their emotional center might look on reason and say, oh, that's very cold. I think reason's very cold, I don't like it at all. So if the same teacher uses love, they say, oh yes, that makes sense to me. But the reasoning person listening to a teaching on love might say, God, that's all sentimental stuff. It's all over the place. Now, both of them, in fact, would be ignorant in their comments. What you'll find is, in the end, there's no difference between intelligence and love. So you know the way they say love is blind? Well, that's not true. Infatuation is blind. But love is highly intelligent. And intelligence is absolutely imbued with love. And both are wisdom. Does that help? Yeah, okay. So, Shane, just on the love theme. So, from what you're saying, you can't fall out of love. No, nor can you fall into it. I've said this before, but the correct way to look at it is you neither fall in or out of love. 
And so people say, will I marry this man? Maybe I won't love him in 20 years. You actually loved him before you knew him. But what you might do is you might cut yourself off from that love. Love doesn't originate in you. It flows through you. So a child has a totally open heart. The love that a child gives to its parents and all that is love flowing through it. It just doesn't put any obstacles in the way. So it just pours out of its being. When we become adults, we think this love is mine. And a bit like it's my money. And I'll decide where I spend my money. And I won't buy this, but I will buy that. Or, I will love that person, but I won't love that person. But that's not love at all. That's prejudice. That's preference. This is extremely challenging, but if one was a truly humble human being, you would ask yourself the question, who am I to withhold love from that man or that woman? Who am I to deem that they are unworthy of this love? To be a loving man or woman, you just have to open your heart. Let's say you're a young person, you know, you're a child, you love Mondays, Tuesdays, all the days of the week, you love all the colours, you love all the subjects in school, everything is fantastic, you rain, fantastic, sunshine, fantastic, everything is all lovable. And you love everything. Now let's just take in terms of a relationship. As you get older, you begin to start excluding people that you could love. So I couldn't possibly love people from the country, because they're very slow. I also can't love people from the city, because they're very quick. I can't love people who talk all the time, because that never gives me a chance to speak. And I can't love people who never say anything, because then I run out of things to say. I can't love loud people because they give me headaches. And I can't love quiet people because I always fall asleep when I'm with them. Anyway, by the time you're 16, you're down to about six people out of the six billion people in the universe that you could possibly love. But they don't love you. So, that's the end of your miserable life. <laughs> right. so, 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 that's a much simpler way. Stop excluding everybody. The unloving state is so miserable because you have to keep everybody out, just in terms of humanity. To try and keep out six billion people from your heart takes a ginormous amount of effort. Do you know a way when you try to avoid seeing somebody or talking to somebody in a restaurant? Somebody comes in, you don't want to talk to them, so you sort of hold the bowl of soup up to your face and sort of... <laughs> Do you know how tiring that is? Because what happens is you spend the entire meal looking at them to see if they're looking at you. And you're exhausted by it. Imagine trying to keep out six billion people. The truth of the matter is that love always energizes. So the man who loves a woman is willing to do lots and lots of things for her to enrich her life, make her happy. Because love always energizes makes you creative, inventive, generous, spontaneous, all these wonderful things. One of the reasons that you and I have such little energy compared to our full potential is because we've stopped loving so many people. The reason why Mother Teresa could work until she died in her 80s is because she loved 
humanity. Those who love are filled with energy. They're never tired. This is why they can live big, big lives. But if you say only are willing to love five or six people, well then even caring for a family becomes hard work. And outside caring for your family and maybe having a career, I can just play maybe one game of golf every week and that's about it for me. Because you don't have the energy. But if you were willing to love the universe, my God, your life would expand dramatically. I do get the impression that you would love Mother Teresa or Jesus more than a lot of other people. I said, if I was to talk to you and make a question and say, well, do you know, reflect on a thought about Jesus, that you would fervently defend that. And to me, the way you're defending it would give me the impression that you would put, and Mother Teresa, that you are giving, um, of course, their, their knowledge, people are not going to doubt their credentials yes. or anything like that at all. But I just find it interesting the way you talk about it. I just find it interesting. Just to say this, in terms of philosophy, it's not that you're supposed to love a few so-called special people. You're not meant to specialize your love. Love is universal, so never specialize. The secret is to love all. But how you express that love will be determined by your relationship. So, if I love you, and i walking down the street, I might get out of your way to let you pass. That's love. If it's a child, I might comfort them. If it's my wife, I might decide I will live with this person for 50 years. How I express the love is determined by the relationship and the need. I love my mother and I love my wife. Whom do I spend more time with? The relationship is such that one should spend more time with wife than mother. Wife is for love, companionship and pleasure. Mothers are for love, honour and respect. And infrequent visits. <laughs> but you don't seek companionship from your mother as you would seek from your wife. You don't seek pleasure from your mother whereas you would with wife. So the love is the same. It's not that you love your wife more than you love your mother or daughter or sister or friend or person on the street whose name you do not even know. But the need and the relationship will determine how you express. So it would be absolutely appropriate to say to your wife, let's go out for a meal. It would be inappropriate to approach every person on the street and say the same thing. <laughs> Does that help at all? Yes. Okay. You were talking about love while ago there, and, and you mentioned that you loved someone before you met him. Did I hear you right? Would you like to expand on that, please? Yeah, we often think that in order to love somebody, you have to know them. But sure, you don't know a baby. But let's say it's born. You don't know them at all. And you love them on the instant. The baby doesn't know you at all, and it loves you on the instant. You don't need any knowledge to love. What you need is an open heart. And if you open your heart, you simply love. Say somebody has a kind heart, or kindness in their heart. Do they have kindness before they meet somebody? Say somebody is a kind person. 
let's say you know somebody and you would say, actually, he or she is a truly kind person. Are they kind before they meet people? Yes, of course they are. Because they have kindness in their being. It's exactly the same with love. Love doesn't start when you meet the person. It's already there. That person may draw it out of you. But it's already there. So you love before you meet the person, during your so-called meeting of them, and after they leave your life. It's nothing to do with knowledge. Because we think it is to do with knowing, that you have to know somebody to love them, this is why we have such long-term relationships before there is marriage. And people think there's a security in that. But the girlfriend isn't a wife. If you date a girlfriend for a year, you know what it's like to have her as a girlfriend. Rest assured, when she's walking back down that aisle, she's a different person. <laughs> she's a wife. Which is a much greater being, just in case for all of those of you who laughed at that, right? A much greater being. And this is a true story. But say I said to you, imagine if a man in his early 20s goes over to Canada for the summer, goes to a party, and as he comes to the door, he sees a woman in the party, and he decides there and then, I'm going to marry that woman. And he marries her three weeks later. Do you think he took a risk? Do we think he did? In fact, he took no risk. He really knew. What we do is we prevent ourselves knowing and then say, look, it's gone on long enough, I'll either end it or I better go down the aisle. But there's no security in that. Let's say if you're a man and you want to find a wife, the whole idea is if your mind is very, very, very still and your heart is wide open, you will recognize your wife on the instant. On the instant. My question would refer back to your points there about purification of the mind. What would you suggest to go home and do either tonight or tomorrow to begin purifying my mind? There's a lot of purifying needs. Yes, no, absolutely. Take two which are easier, right? There's false knowledge. Any knowledge which excludes, which prefers, which puts one man or woman above another, which isolates and divides. Drop it. Examine it, see it to be false, and do not operate from it. Because that's an impurity. As regards the emotions, all the negative emotions, like anger and greed and jealousy and envy and all of these, and worry, anxiety, don't allow them to operate. So, I've said this before, but, you know, maybe about 15 or 20 years ago, I made a resolution with regard to misery, which all those negative emotions produce, that I would not be miserable for more than five seconds. Three seconds was for indulgence, because I'm Irish, and two seconds was to bring about either transcendence or dissolution or whatever. And I can honestly say this, certainly as regards the vast majority of the life, that I have not been miserable in the last 20 years for more than five seconds. You hear people saying, I had a bad day. Imagine losing 24 hours of bliss. 
So don't allow these emotions. So if anger arises, dissolve it within five seconds. If dissatisfaction arises, dissolve it in five seconds. Find a way. Find a way to dissolve it. Don't suppress it, but find a way to dissolve it. And the instruction in the talk was, the way to do it, the best way to do it, is to cultivate its opposite. So, if you're plagued by envy, just cultivate generosity. If you're plagued with anger, cultivate calmness. If you're plagued with irritation, cultivate patience. That's all. And it's a lovely word, cultivate. Really nice word. And it's possible to cultivate these. Let's say you are plagued with anger, to whatever degree. If you really work at what I've just said, or the contents of this talk, you will be free of anger within a year. Easily. So let's say you free yourself of anger in one year, and then you take five other limitations in your mind and heart, and you free yourself of those in five years. You will be a remarkable man within five years. Nelson Mandela developed forgiveness. That is his great, great, great quality. And for that the world will remember him and admire him and he will inspire generations with one virtue developed to a large degree. So you can do that easily. Take five virtues. Mandela was obviously a very lazy man when it came to these things. <laughs> so, but you, you can do that and do to it. And forgiveness is intelligent. And calmness is intelligent. And peace is intelligent. And generosity is intelligent. So that's what I would say as regards purification. Whenever something that is not conducive to happiness, freedom, peace and love enters your mind and heart, replace it with something that is. If you put some food into your mouth and it tasted bad, you take it out. You don't say, ah, oh, well, sure, it's halfway down my stomach, I might as well finish it off. Like, you take it out. If you find a thought arising in your mind, and it simply causes you to demean another person, or be angry with them, or divide yourself from them, in a way, take it out of your mind and heart. Go free of it. Does that help? Thank you very much. My question is about perfecting concentration. Our lives are so busy and full of different things and easily distracted and we're multitasking. So have you any tips to help us perfect concentration? Yes. You talked about distraction and multitasking and everything like that. I'm going to give you a question. You can practice this and just see whether it works. The question to ask is, what is the need now? And whatever is the need now, give your full attention to it. I'll just make up a little scene. Let's say you're on the phone, and you're talking to somebody, and then a child comes tugging at you and saying it wants a bottle or something like that. And you say, hang on, hang on a second. Look, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm trying to finish a call. So you're caught between the two. If you ask, what is the need now? You would simply say to the child, wait till I finish this call. Or you would say, I'm going to have to ring you back. There's no agitation. And then you would concentrate on the need. 
If you ask the question, what is the need now, whenever your life is complicated and apparently full of diverse activities pulling you different ways, it reduces it to utmost simplicity. The way the creation is organized or designed is there are never two equally supreme needs now. So if you ask the question with an open mind and heart, you will be presented always with one need and if you do that, your mind becomes very still and you concentrate perfectly on it. And then you take care of the subsequent needs in the fullness of time. That works. We shall leave it at that. Thank you very much.